Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to The Daily Evolver. It's uh, Monday, February 19th, 2018, and I am happy to be with you on this cold winter's day here in Boulder, Colorado. And here in front of the hearth, in front of your hearth, uh, Corey DeVos, Editor-in-Chief of Integral Live. Hey, Corey. Hey, my man. How you doing? I'm doing good. Good. Good to have you with us. Yeah. Good to be here. So, yeah, so today I wanted to talk a little bit about the Olympics that are going on in South Korea and take a little bit of a different tack because I'm not much of a fan. Uh, and, and I feel bad about that, actually. I feel like I should be. And I'm, I see these people and they're doing their, this amazing stuff and I'm not interested enough. And so, you know, I sort of do some uh, soul searching about that. And... Um, and I realized that anytime I think about sports, I think about them anthropologically. I don't really, I'm not really interested so much in the game. And so, you know, I'm a little bit out of my, out of my realm here. And Corey, you too, right? You, you were saying you, you, you weren't watching anything. Yeah, I haven't watched any of these Winter Olympics at all. Uh, I'm not sure why. Usually we do. Usually we watch at least like, you know, Angie likes watching the figure skating and stuff like that. But yeah. You Some know, of I, that I can do too, and I and I get interested in, but yeah, and I don't know why. I always find myself more interested in the Summer Olympics than I am the Winter Olympics. I'm not. I'm not sure why. Uh -huh. Yeah, it's it's like the off year election of 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 Olympic competitions. Well, the, it, it 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 invites an integral inquiry into you know why do we have these different receptors and and our preferences and you know it's fun to look at ourselves and look at this you know manifestation of Corey and me and everybody listening and see how they're all different and we're all different and this is one way of 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 looking at it and and we did a um uh, an episode a few weeks back during the Super Bowl on what that we called the end of American football and I, I realized I wish I had titled it The Arising of Humanity in Sports, because what we did, and this was, again, anthropological thinking, tracing the evolution of sports from in the earliest sports, you would play soccer with the head of your enemy that you just decapitated. It would be very informal. Uh, and then we, you know, we evolved to the head of a goat. We evolved to a leather ball. And we have sports, even today, that have their roots at every level of development. There's boxing, there's running, there's racing, there's football, which is a little more organized than maybe red, blue, and then baseball, which is blue, orange. And, you know, we talked about perhaps soccer being a green sport and that it's world-centric, it's more theatrical and so forth. And I got a, an interesting letter from one of our listeners, and he was talking about so what would green sports be and, and that move from green to integral? And he's a teacher and, 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 and obviously taught gym. So uh, I'll read a little bit about what he said about this evolution of sports. And he was saying, he said, regarding the green examples of sports, when I was teaching, we were struggling with trends that wanted to take all of the competition out of sports, not only sports, but academics as well. There are entire books full of cooperative games, which are honestly not very exciting. I always thought that a more positive way to look at it was to emphasize teamwork. For example, 
I often played a form of dodgeball with the kids, which had a couple of extra rules that allowed those eliminated to get back in the game, but only if the team could enact a strategy that would reactivate them. This produced a game with all the old-fashioned joy of hitting your opponent with a ball, but also demanded the constant use of strategy and cunning to keep your people in the game, and also avoided having kids too long on the sidelines, uh, eliminated, only watching instead of participating. I like to think of it as an integral game, as it allowed for inclusion, strategy, teamwork, and bashing your opponent, checking off all the stages. And I would think that an integral sport would want to include those qualities. And I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, it's well said. Yeah. And there were also several listeners who wrote and pointed out that we have what could be an integral sport right in front of our eyes, and that's the Olympics. And if we look at the Olympics, it also checks the boxes. And this is from Elijah, and I'll read it, just a paragraph. He said, I think a candidate for integral sports, although one which I'm not that excited about myself, so join the club, is the Olympics. There, th there's a typical red competition, which is the feats of strength and the running and jumping and all of that. The competitions are conducted with sets of rules and the tradition of the Olympics, which goes back centuries. There's also a competition based on your country, actually millennia. There's also a competition based on your country, which I could make a case for being purple, red, or blue, depending on how, uh, how the group, one's country, is defined. Is it more tribe-like, ethno, or nation-state? And there's also a clear corporate dimension, which is the orange, modern. During the broadcast, there are tons of human interest stories going into the backstories of the athletes, and it is clearly a world event. So overall, it seems pretty inclusive of all the first-tier stages to me, at least from red onward. And I think that's true. And, um, and so, you know, to get back to this self-examination of how I can appreciate that culturally, anthropologically, uh, as being an amazing uh, device for world centrism as people look at athletes from all countries and see this common humanities and it's piped into every country and every country takes it seriously. And that's very inspiring. And I love that part. <laughs> but don't make me watch it. <laughs> but, but so then I think, so why am I not interested? And, and I, I don't want to just give up. And so I did make a stab at it. So the other night, Chuck and I decided we were going to watch the Olympics. And, you know, we have Comcast, so there's this Olympic Central, and there's, you could just pick what you want to watch, and it's all super easy. And so we settled down to watch. And we started with this Sean White wins half-pipe gold. And uh, so this is where Sean White, the legendary snowboarder, you know him, Corey? Oh, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's big in Colorado. I, he may be here in Colorado, but at any rate, uh, he's a big deal. He's won the gold twice. And this is him going for a third gold at the age of 30 or 31. And, uh, and so I'm going to play it for you. And it's only 30 seconds. And then I'm going to jump to the end when we see the conclusion. 
uh, and that'll be a minute or so. So here we go to share screen. And this is Sean White getting ready. And this is the actual run down the half pipe on a snowboard, uh, trying for his third gold medal. Sean White for the gold. 1440, he needs the back-to-backs to take down Ayumu and gets it! The second 1440. Delta McTwist, 1260. Sean White, one more hit. Will it be enough? So, so I'm going to jump ahead here. There were a couple excruciating minutes while they're all doing their counting and judging and so forth. And he's standing out there. So here we are. They're about to announce the, the results. And the score is in. It's the return of the king in the men's half pipe. Sean White takes the gold. White is the new gold. Did he say white is the new gold? White is the new gold. Pretty good, huh? He might might have had that prepared, but, you know, that's hard to resist. And, you know, that even gets into me. You know, there he is sobbing at the end after this amazing run that I watched and I tried to appreciate it from some, you know, somatic perspective, but I don't just have a lot of receptors there. But what I did do, it was funny, was um, we had the talk last week with Tom Habib where we were talking about the predictable stages of development in couples. And that as couples move into a a more integral stage of development, that what he calls first love, actually first love, is where you want to prolong moments of poignancy. And so when you have a movie or you uh, you watching something like this and you're moved that you would actually want to pause it and turn to your partner and share that moment of poignancy. <laughs> so I did. I, now Chuck didn't know what we were doing, but I turned to him and I looked and I was all teary eyed and normally I would turn away and it was excruciating to t- turn towards him. And uh, and he just kind of looked at me funny, <laughs> and I turned back, and it didn't really launch very much, but I, I, I think it was progress. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, the, the, to be able to watch that and, uh, and to have that actually be transmitted to me was a gift, and I appreciate it, but it's, it's not easy. And this is where, actually, from an integral perspective, there is a learning. Here's a teaching here. Uh, We look at 
I, I'm very inspired by, many of us are here listening to The Daily Evolver, by Ken Wilber's work in the maps of development that he calls aqua, all quadrants, levels, lines, state, states, and types. And these maps lay out as a map of each of us. That's the map of Jeff. And the type part is the last one. And these types represent the structures that we come into life with, the structure of our consciousness that we were born with. Uh, the, the idea of us being a blank slate at birth is even psychologists don't believe that anymore. We come in here with predilections. We come in here with different antenna, with what we're able to see, what catches our eye, what interests us, you know, what when we think of it enlivens us, what when we think of it, well, it's really hard to think of some things. It's like for me with sports, when I, people talk about sports, I don't even register. I open the newspaper every morning for the last 40 years and remove the sports section. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't even get in. And, you know, one of the things that um, I've learned from the typologies, and, and, and let me just say that I, I know there's critiques of typologies, that they're not scientifically proven and so forth. But that doesn't mean they're not true. They're not proven not to be true either. And clearly, we know that they're helpful. And they have been helpful to me. And the one that uh, is mostly referred to in the integral world is the Enneagram. And the Enneagram is a, a beautiful and typology with ancient roots that has this, you know, to me, just a fragrance of truth and wisdom to it that uh, is self-authenticating as I use it and find myself getting bigger and wiser and seeing other people less as defective versions of myself, which is what I used to think they were. <laughs> so, you know, for me, uh, I'm a, you know, if you, if, for those of you who are into Myers-Briggs, I'm an intuitive, I'm an uh, INFP. And the N is the person who's more comfortable in the world of thought versus the sensor, which is the other side of that pole. And the sensor is more grounded and wants to work in the real world and with material things and, and understand systems and, and intuitives like more theoretical. And in the Enneagram, I'm a five, and I was looking at some of the descriptions of five. And uh, the here is the one that I just copied a paragraph that this sort of, I think, really sums me up. Fives feel comfortable and at home in the realm of thought. The problem for fives is that while they are comfortable in the realm of thought, they are frequently a good deal less comfortable when it comes to dealing with their emotions, the demands of a relationship, or the need to find a place for themselves in the world. Uh, fives tend to be non-intrusive, independent, and they're often seen as impractical, too theoretical, and lacking in determination by people on the other sides of the pole. And that's um, certainly true for me. As a kid, I was very happy to be lost in my books. I dreaded gym class. Uh, even as an adult, when I wrecked my knee skiing in my early 30s, I was secret, secretly relieved that I never had to do it again. You know, that I could 
just read the novel by the fire and let the other people ski. And then we'd come back and have a nice hot toddy. And that would be a great day for me. Uh, I noticed even last Saturday night, actually, we went to a restaurant and there were screens, TV, big TV screens all over. And um, I remember being annoyed that people were shouting and looking at the watch. It was all the Olympics. And, you know, I just didn't even notice them. And I wanted to have a conversation. And so that's just the receptors that I'm missing, actually. And, and I realized that. And, you know, there's a certain heartbreak to it. But there's a certain liberation to it, too. Because, you know, as Ken Wilber sometimes says, we liberate things by limiting them. And once one sees one's, you know, own wiring and parameters, there's an opportunity to work with it in a way that is liberated from the idea that it ought to be different. And, uh, you know, even to get to this idea of is integral arrogant because we have these developmental lines and so forth and we see ourselves as being at the cutting edge. But as I often point out, there's, we're the first level of development to see that there are further ones. And it also helps you to see, you know, the parts of the human condition that you're sort of missing the antenna for. And, and then so there's a couple ways you could respond to that. One is what I call the Schwarzenegger approach, which is where you work on what it is you have to uh, improve on. That was what Arnold Schwarzenegger did as a bodybuilder. He said he would always work on the part of his body that was the weakest. And, you know, I do want to do that. And uh, I, I go to my workout three mornings a week. And I am grateful that my trainer is as um, patient with me as he is. I mean, he'll show me this movement where I'm laying on my back and and he demonstrates it for me. And you put your hands up and then you bring your knees up and you touch your whatever and then the, the hands. And, the, and, and I watch him and I think, okay. And then I lay there and it's like, what are we doing again? And he's very patient. And it's, but I, you know, I do do it. And, um, you know, it doesn't take a lot of consciousness to uh, ride an exercise. So I do that pretty well. Uh, and actually I did a, uh, an episode a while back, and it's funny, it was a little uh, sort of, uh, it is in a way felt insignificant episode, but it got a lot of feedback. And it was this idea of a transpersonal workout, which is what I try to do with my workout, where when I'm doing these repetitive motions, I don't just try to like, you know, how many more uh, repetitions do I have? How much longer do I have to do this? But I imagine myself that I am pumping the uh, well, the pump in a well in a village where the children need to drink and that I move into that mode and that when I do, there's a relaxation that happens and there's a sort of an appropriateness that happens in terms of uh, how I'm relating to the exercise. I'm, I'm no longer as gripped in fear and, and loathing and I'm more gripped by meaning and, and something that's beyond me. I'm actually working in this larger system that matters. The children have to drink. And so um, the other day, my trainer had me on uh, 
a rowing machine. And we've been talking about we would like to increase my cardio strength and so forth. And so when just when I thought we were done, which is we would normally be done after 10 minutes or so, he said, I'm adding another 15 minutes right now. And I felt myself clench in fear and there was no way I was going to be able to do that. And oh my God, and anxiety and all of the stuff that, you know, floods me when I'm working in the material world like this it doesn't come naturally for me. And I reframed it as, okay, it's life in the village. I have to pump the water. The flu has come through the village. So a lot of the adults that normally help me pump the water aren't going to be here. And I just have to do this by myself. And I can. And that brought on the, 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 the right cadence. There was, a, again, a relaxation. I felt like I was in a groove. I saw the 15 minutes out in front of me, uh, was okay with it. And my God, this works, you know. So that's kind of the approach of don't give up. Just keep working on these sides of yourself that don't come easily or naturally. But then the other side is to surrender. Mm. And just, you know, uh, here's how I've thought about it. I, I, I feel like the 50-year project of making Jeff a different person has been an abject failure. And I'm abandoning that project. <laughs> but I can be a bigger and better version of Jeff. And that, that feels like a different move. Uh, and, you know, that kind of gets me excited so anyway that's awesome mr Corey. that's awesome I, I, love, I love hearing you talk about that jeff and and sort of how you're able to turn you know your exercise routine into basically a tongue len practice yes and how that tongue len practice actually gets you in touch with something deep down that's indestructible yep. that can survive another 15 minutes another 30 minutes and you know whatever it, it might be you've, you've, mm -hmm. You can access that sort of stability and that that strength inside of you. So I think that's, I, I love hearing you talk about that, and it's it's had an effect on me. And I've heard from a lot of other people. It's it's. Yeah, had, I know. I get this feedback. It's like, oh, I love that transpersonal thing. Me yeah. and my husband do it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, and I, you know, I I, I loved when you're talking about sort of taking a more how'd you frame it a, a, an anthropological look at at sports. Yeah. Is how you tend to relate to it. Mm -hmm. I, I've I, I'm sort of similar. Um, you know, there are some sports that I love that I genuinely love watching, um, boxing and baseball being basically the two that I love the most. Oh, really? You like yeah. boxing? You... I do love boxing. Yeah. That scares me. It's, you know, it is simultaneously, I, I see it as the most, simultaneously the most pure and the most corrupt sport. <laughs> and I'm fascinated with that sort of tension. You mean you know, corrupt economically or corrupt? Oh, corrupt is that it's, you know, it's run by mobsters. and Yeah, fair enough. Know, yeah, that it, part. It, it's a horribly corrupt sport structurally. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in the ring, it's about as pure and raw as it gets. You know, yeah. get two men, you know, and just beat the shit out of each other until one person can't walk out. Yeah. Um, I, I love the, you know, to me, it's like the blues. It's such a simple set of rules. And you can create so much beauty within that simplicity. I just, you know, that's why I've always preferred boxing over like mixed martial arts, for example. 
Right. A lot of my friends, you know, moved over to MMA type stuff, but you know, I still, I still. So how do you feel though about the fact that you can see these people are, um, you know, debilitating themselves? It's, it's, it's tough. I I mean, mean, we didn't used to know that, but we do now. That's right. And that has, you know, I think the thesis we made, you were part of the thing we did on the Super Bowl, right? Yeah, the thesis was that, you know, people, this concussion thing, you know, once you know that you can't continue to watch it in the same way, people are stopped, you know, it's losing um, popularity slowly. Uh, but boxing is, I don't know, is that still, of course it's still going strong. But oh yeah, no, I mean, you know, most, most aging boxers are definitely a bit punch drunk. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's- in terms of how do I feel about that? I mean, I don't, you know, there's, 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 you know, as you were talking about sort of evolving away from sort of the gladiatorial aspect of sports, there's, there's still a part of me that lights up with that, I guess. No. Yeah. You know, and it's probably the same part of me, I, well, you know, right. I've, yeah, totally. Oh, yeah, it's 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 total red, and 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 you know, in a lot of ways, healthy red. Yes. Good. You know, in this in this you know sort of, I I believe sports sports performs two very important functions in society. First off, it's a holster for our tribalism, right? It's a place for us to safely put our tribalism so that that doesn't cause bigger issues down the line. So that you know we don't have. The Colorado Army. Yeah, totally. you know, it's it's civil, civilizing our impulses to compete, to win. Somebody wins, somebody loses. It's, you know, a civilized kind of warfare. That's right. With all kinds of rules and yep. uh, equipment and protection and whatever. Yep. But that's what it is at its base. Yep. And the other thing I think it does is it, it, it gives men a common language that they can use to, you know, interact with each other while avoiding sort of the awkwardness of genuine relationship which a lot of people <laughs> tend to avoid with each other okay. um, but you know for me you know I, I I was never too into playing sports I mean I sucked at them was my problem I, my my kinesthetic line is you know one of my least developed lines and uh, that's that's always been the case since I was a little kid I was always yeah. very clumsy and people would make fun of how I ran and you know shit like that yeah. and that, and that yeah. caused me for whatever reason in middle school I felt like I had a binary decision it, it's I totally didn't it was a false choice but for whatever reason, in middle school, I felt like I had to choose between sports, which was something my dad, my stepdad, you know, really loved, um, or music and arts in general. And I went down the music path, mm-hmm. um, you know, nope. not that it brought me very far, but it, just in terms of, you know, what I was, the appreciation that I was developing was definitely more focused on music and art, sure. and, you know, things like that. And how wonderful that you had that opportunity. For sure. And- you know, uh, and the, especially and, and even far more these days, children have many different paths of growing and coming of age, and sports Absolutely. is one of them. When I grew up, sports you pretty much had to do if you could. Right. And there I was, a six foot five inch tenor in the choir. Uh, and the f- basketball coaches wanted to form me into a basketball player. And so I was on the team and I was terrible. And, you know, I went in four years of playing high school basketball from a one to a two, you know, I mean, it's just terrible. Yeah. And finally, in my senior year, I said, uh, you know, he came to me and said, you're going to sign up. And I said, no. And he looked at me and it was like, I get it. I mean, even he finally gave up on me. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, it is what it is. And I think it's not unusual in the integral world 
to have people who just have, you know, that they're more on the intuitive side than the, the um, sensing side in that formulation, you know, more uh, in the, the world of ideas than the world of actual hard reality. Yeah. 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 So. Well, you know, the, the other side to this, Jeff, too, that I, that I continue to be fascinated by, even though I don't have a lot of personal experience with it myself, though I think you do. And I think your actual, you know, sort of exercising as Tong Len is a version of this which is, you know, one of the things that Ken often says that I often find, you know, really interesting is that uh, he goes, outside of church and, and perhaps even beyond church, the place where more Americans are having more regular spiritual experiences, like actual legitimate states of enlightenment, temporary mm -hmm. or otherwise, mm -hmm. is on the sports field. You, 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 you know, these athletes at sort of, you know, they're, they're very peak of their performance totally are able to tap into these flow states these non-dual states where self and other dissolve and you know the whole thing just sort of collapses and you know it's and it's it's, it's gorgeous and ken did a a dialogue with someone who you know maybe we should actually bring onto the show scott ford mm -hmm. who is a tennis coach and he teaches flow states using tennis yeah um and from what i understand he's got like a 99 percent you know success rate and what's interesting is not only is he using tennis to open people to these spiritual states but he's also helping sort of more spiritually minded people find a little bit more grounding in their own bodies and it, and it improves both it improves your tennis game and Fabulous. it improves your access to these states and i find that you know anytime you hear someone come along say look i've got something that you know a 99 percent effectiveness rate can get you into these you know really pretty advanced states of consciousness you know, I, I perk up a bit. I start paying yeah. attention. Well, that's what we can get from this. And, and I don't care how, you know, ethereal we are. Would you see something like what we just watched with Sean White? So he's, there he is. He has to instantly, right on that moment, enter the flow that he needs to do what he did. And so we see that flow. And even I see that flow. Yeah. You know, I don't know if I see it as deeply as other people do. Probably not. But I see it. And then talk about the ecstatic state. Yeah. You know, the spiritual state of, uh, you know, the self is obliterated in a certain way. And, and, and so he learns that he wins the third gold medal and he is wrecked. Yeah. Now, who can resist that? Yeah, totally. So that we can get. <laughs> yep. Well, that's what's amazing is, is, is both the flow state that, that he was able to get into and sort of the emotional state that resulted from that both transmit. Both transmit and they transmit very differently. You know, it's like, it's like watching Michael Jordan play back in the, you know, in the eighties. I mean, it, what, Jordan himself, you know, would get into these flow states where, you know, it's often described as time slows down. Well, you as a viewer, as an audience, time is slowing down for you as well. When you're watching, you know, this human being, you know, do this. I mean, just on an aesthetic, purely aesthetic level. Yeah. It transmits and you have yeah. access to sort of even just for a moment, that same flow state that yeah. Jordan or Sean White or whoever is able to get into. And it's, you know, it's gorgeous. And then you have the emotional state afterwards, yeah. where, you know, but between those two, you know, watching a good athlete at their peak do an amazing performance. It's, you know, it can, it can yeah. feel like reading Rumi, you know, yeah, it has that same sort of, you know, warm washing over you kind of, it has that effect. Yes, indeed. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The other, you know, the other one, one little minor point, Jeff, I was really fascinated when you were talking about integral sports. 
And, you know, to me, it's, it, it's, it goes back to what we often talk about with art, that it's almost, it's almost more difficult to talk about integral sports versus enacting sports integrally, right? It's really hard to come up with a solid definition. No, it's true. It, it, yes, there's some conflation going on there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's tricky, you know, because it's like, well, well, what is an integral sport? I mean, does that mean structurally it has to be, you know, built with integral premises? Or does that mean the, you know, uh, average center of gravity of the players on the field are at integral? Or does that mean that I as an audience member have sort of the tools and the heuristics to enact it in a particular way? Is it on a management level? Is it on a commercial level? Is, you know, it's so many of these sort of factors that to me, it really comes down to, and this is one of the beautiful things about the, you know, something like the Olympics, and it's probably true for every sport out there, is whatever altitude you come at it from, that's what you're going to see. Yeah. Right? I mean, if you're coming that's at right. the Olympics point. from red, you're going to, that's a red competition. Yeah. And, and you know, and we all have that strata. You know, some of us are more in touch with it than others. Those that just basic, who's the fastest, who jumps the highest, mm -hmm. you know. And integral uh, allows you to be okay with that. Totally. I think it's the other point, you know, green, you know, sort of coming into integral, there's this sort of pressure that we put on ourselves to like distance ourselves from our, you know, kind of lower nature. And well, that doesn't work very well. And plus, it's just really not very fun. The universe right. becomes very inert when you're cut off from, you know, th right. those lower intelligences. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is why I just keep trying. I get Monday, Wednesday, and Friday mornings. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Mr. Corey. Hey, thank you, thank Mr. Sullivan. Everybody, and uh, keep watching the Olympics and uh, and let us know what you think. And see you next time.